This evening we'll be in Romans 9, verses 25 through 33. If you remember last week, picking up right where we left off, uh, mostly speaking about the doctrine of election. In light of that, we find ourselves here in verse 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 33. Allow me to read it for us as we get started. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let me pray for us as we get started. <clears throat> Lord God, I thank you for your promises that you've made to us. I thank you for your promise of salvation through Christ. I thank you that you are a trustworthy God, a good and perfect and holy and just and gracious and merciful God. God, we thank you that we can be here tonight and learn from your word. God, I pray that I would not be in the way of your truth. Lord, that you would, by your spirit, teach us your truth through your word and through the preaching of your word. That you'd be honored, you'd be glorified. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Maybe you guys have been uh, let down by others before. Maybe you've experienced empty promises broken promises, and they could vary on different degrees on the weight of these promises. Maybe that's been broken, the weight of how you guys have been disappointed. Uh, I'll share a couple with you. Uh, the first being when I was in, in junior high, this is really going to seem small to you, but to me it was, it was a really big deal. All right. In junior high, a dollar was a big deal. I don't know if it still is, but it was a big deal, at least at my school. Like, if you had a dollar, that you could go far. Like the snack shack, you could buy a lot at the snack shack for a dollar. So everyone's always asking, "Hey, you got a dollar? Hey, you got a dollar?" Because like, oh, you got a dollar? Like, okay. And I usually had a dollar on me, but I, I did not like to spend my dollar. I like just to keep my dollar and save my dollar in case the event where I really needed to spend big and spend that dollar. In any case, there's some kid who came up to me and he's like, hey, do you have a dollar? 
And I didn't want to lie to him, so I was like, yeah, I have a dollar. And he's like, hey, can I have that dollar? I'll pay you back. And I was like, no, it's my dollar. Like, I'm not going to give it to you. He's like, come on, please. And we're having this exchange back and forth. Finally, he convinced me to give him his dollar. I mean, for me to give him my dollar. So I gave him my dollar. And he's like, don't worry. I promise. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back tomorrow. I was like, okay, great. So tomorrow I go up to him and say, hey, do you have my dollar? And what do you think he said? Oh, no, sorry. I don't have the dollar. I was like, what? You promised you'd give me the dollar. Oh, no, sorry. I don't. I, I, I promise. I'll bring it tomorrow. Okay. So the next day I go up to him. Hey, you got my dollar? What do you think he said? No, no I don't have your dollar. And I said, what? And I kid you not, every single day I'd go up to this boy and I'd say, hey, do you have my dollar? And what do you think he said? No. Oh, no, I don't have it, but I, I'll give it to you tomorrow. And to this day, he still owes me this dollar. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> he broke his promise. And as you can see, I'm still holding on a little bit of bitterness. <laughs> I don't even want to tell you the next story. I, don't, I should probably just skip it. All right, I'll tell you. Okay. I'll, I'll, it'll be quick. The, my first girlfriend I ever had, sadly not Katie, my first girlfriend I ever had, we promised each other that we'll always love each other. We were in first grade. <laughs> and... I remember promising her, and I had a little Sunny Delight juice little bottle, and I peeled, you know, the little the seal. I peeled the seal, popped off the cap, and I had that little seal, and I gave it to her as a ring and said, this is my promise. I will love you forever. And she's like, I promise too. I haven't spoken to her since. I don't know. But we broke that promise to each other, which for good. I, I'm glad. <laughs> Anyways. Many of us have probably experienced, to to some degree, broken promises. And and, and what this, I think, does in us, these broken promises we experience, it it, it creates maybe doubts in our minds. It it creates us uh, or it causes us not to trust others as much maybe because we've experienced these broken promises just, just, just being let down. And the danger is when we direct our doubts and direct our distrust. To God, as if God uh, ever has or, or ever will break his promises. And it gets even more dangerous when we doubt God's promises of salvation. And in this passage, we, we see that God's purpose of salvation has not failed, and it never has failed. And, and nor, we, 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 or I say, we also see that God has never gone back on his promises. He's never gone back on his promises of salvation. Paul here shows that it it has always been part of God's plan that not all of Israel would be saved. And that salvation would come to the Gentiles. And so tonight we're going to look at God's plan of salvation. In that he always planned for salvation to include the Gentiles. That not all of Israel will be saved, but rather only a remnant will be saved. And that salvation has always been by faith and not by works. These are the promises of salvation that we see tonight in verses 25 through 33. So let's jump right in. Our first section. So we, again, we have three main points and two subpoints. 
for a main point. Our first main point is salvation for the Gentiles, verses 25 and 26. Salvation for the Gentiles. And the first thing we see in this is Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah was foreknown. It's always been known. Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah, or say Jesus as the Messiah, was foreknown. Paul quotes Hosea here in verses 25 and 26. In fact, he says in 25, as indeed he says in Hosea. Then he quotes Hosea. Now, before we look at the significance of these quotes, it's important for us to understand the context of Hosea. Some of you may remember the story of Hosea. Some of you may not know the story at all. Just a brief overview. God told Hosea, Hosea, marry Gomer. And Gomer was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And God says to Hosea, you're going to marry Gomer, a prostitute, and you will have children with her. God instructed Hosea to marry someone who was going to be unfaithful to him. And yet he was called to still be faithful to her. And it was meant to be a visible illustration of how Israel had been unfaithful to God and yet how God remained faithful to them. In fact, Gomer would eventually leave Hosea in her unfaithfulness, but Hosea's love towards Gomer remained and she eventually returned to him. And throughout their marriage, they had three kids. And God named these kids. Actually, God said, you are going to name this kid this, you're going to name this kid this, you're going to name this kid this. God named each one of them, each one of them having significant meaning behind their name. Their first child was a son named Jezreel. And it means God sows. And it refers to the scattering of seeds, the scattering of the seeds that are being sown. And this was to represent God's people, Israel, being scattered like sown seeds, scattered throughout and indeed, that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They did scatter. And then the second child was a daughter named Lo-Rahama, which means not, that's the low, not loved or not pitied. This was to represent that during that time in which Israel was scattered, they would no longer be pitied by God like they once were. And then the third child was a son named Lo, we see Lo again, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Also representing God's attitude toward Israel, that as they have rejected him, they would no longer be his people. These are the names of his kids that God named them, saying you, you are being scattered like seeds, that you are no longer loved, you are not pitied, that, that you are not my people. Now what does all this have to do with God's sovereign plan of salvation? God knew that Israel would turn from him in unbelief. It was all part of God's sovereign plan that Israel would reject his plan of salvation. And the biggest rejection from Israel was that of the Messiah, the rejection of Jesus. This was Israel's ultimate and supreme unfaithfulness, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Through the prophet Hosea, God revealed what kind of people Israel would be. That they would be unfaithful. That, that they would reject the Messiah. That they would be scattered. That they would not be pitied. And that they would no longer be considered God's people. See, it was always part of God's sovereign plan. And has always been known 
that Israel would be unfaithful to God as they would reject Jesus as Messiah. But now we have to ask ourselves this, or I ask you this tonight. Have you rejected Jesus as Messiah? Have you rejected Jesus as Messiah? What does that mean? Have you rejected Jesus as the one to save you? The only one to save you. He is the Savior of the world. And to rely on your own works, to rely on your, your, own, your, your good life or, or your own righteousness is to reject Jesus as Savior, as Messiah. And I fear that there are many in here who have rejected Jesus as Savior. Maybe you come in and out of church or, or you come in and out of youth group and, and you sing praises to Jesus and, and you agree with Jesus and, and, and you even like Jesus. Hey, he seems like a good guy. But you've not trusted in him as your Savior. You, you've, you've trusted yourself in some way. You, you've trusted yourself in, in well, I'm in a, a Christian family. I am a Christian. You've trusted in yourself. I I, I, I Agree with the things of the Bible. I, I love going to church. I love going to youth group. I've done this. I don't do this. And so, yes, I, I, yeah, I'm good. You trust in yourself, which is not trusting in Jesus. Do not reject Jesus. He is the Christ, not you. He is Messiah. And only in him can we have salvation. Now, really what these verses are talking about in Hosea, and brings us to our second point, really what these verses are saying is that salvation from God extends to the Gentiles. That's our next sub-point here. That salvation from God extends to the Gentiles. See, from what we've heard so far from Hosea, it seems as if God's promise for salvation has fallen through, right? That's because we've not finished the story. In Romans 9, right here, in this passage, we see God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. Paul quotes two verses from Hosea, which he writes here in Romans 9, verses 25 and 26. He says, those who were not my people, remember that was their name, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. See, what is significant about these quotes from Hosea is that we see that God changes the names of Hosea's kids. He says, you are not my people, but now I will call you my people. He also says, you are not my beloved, but now I will call you my beloved. Now. There are many questions as to why exactly Paul would quote this here and what this has to do with Israel and with Gentiles, etc. Like, what is he really getting at and what does it mean? And I'm telling you, there are a lot of different views and a lot of them with good arguments and points. We're not going to spend time looking at all those different views. But based on the context of where Paul's coming from in verse 24, what we looked at last week, and based on where he's going in chapter 10... I believe Paul is seeking to make clear that salvation is open to the Gentiles. And I think unbelieving Israel can be included in this as well. That as, as Israel has rejected God, as we just said, that they have become as Gentiles. right? As They were God's people, but as they rejected God, they have become as if they are Gentiles. 
So when the verse says, I will call them my people who are not my people, that's not referring to Jews only, but I think rather it's referring to Gentiles, as in those who have rejected God. In this case, that'd be traditional Gentiles as well as the Jews who have become Gentiles. It encompasses both those who have rejected God, whether that be Gentiles or Israel, as they've rejected Jesus as Messiah. Okay, as, as John Calvin put it, I think he, he puts it better than I just did. He says, quote, When the Jews were banished from the family of God, they were thereby reduced to a common level with the Gentiles. The distinction between Jew and Gentile has been removed, and the mercy of God now extends indiscriminately to all Gentiles. End quote. Salvation is not for the Jew only. But salvation is for the Gentile as well. In other words, salvation is for all peoples, all races, all genders, all social classes, all backgrounds, all whatever, to everybody. The gospel is open to all. So what this means is this, that the gospel is open to you, that the gospel is for you. It doesn't matter of your level of rejection. It doesn't matter if, if you don't feel close to becoming a Christian or not. Christianity is not a step-by-step process in which we have to work our way and get closer and closer to being saved. Christianity is a miracle from death to life. And that's it. If you are here and you are not a Christian, know that the gospel is for you. Do not think for a second, I'm too young to be a Christian, or I'm 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 too sinful to be a Christian, or I don't I don't know enough about the, the, the Bible to be a Christian, or I don't come from the right family to be a Christian, or or God would never accept me. God would never choose to love me. That's nonsense. If you feel the call of God to repent and believe, then the gospel is for you. And repent and believe. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've done. You do not need to build up a a, a certain amount of knowledge or, or a certain amount of good works to be saved. Simply come and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Did the Gentiles build up anything to make themselves more appealing to God? Did the Gentiles do that? Did the Gentiles accomplish anything for God to accept them? No, they were Gentiles. And on the flip side, look at the Jews. They thought they had a very special status with God. They were in with God just simply because they were Jews. But Paul uses Hosea to show that this is not the case. And as we've seen time and time again, especially in the book of Romans, that we are not saved because of our heritage. We're not saved because of what we bring to the table. But we are only saved because God has chosen to save us. And by his grace, he has given us faith to believe in him. So cry out to God that he would save you, that he would give you faith to believe, and he would give you a heart of repentance. God can save anyone. Do you believe that? God can save anyone. 
Do you believe that? I, I, I mean, do you truly believe that God can save anyone? And theologically and, and intellectually, we say, well, yeah, of course. Like, I, I can see in the Bible where God can save anyone. Yes, of course, I agree with that. But that's not what I'm asking. I mean, really? Do you believe that God can save anyone? What about the family member that you've talked to so many times and it just seems like they're never going to believe? What about the friend who's so against Christianity, there's no chance they would become a Christian? And in your mind, maybe you know, yeah, God can save them. But in your heart, you've given up on them. You don't really believe that God would save them. You've grown tired and hopeless. You feel defeated. God's not going to save them. That's what you, what you say, what you think, what you feel. But no, Christian, know that God can still save them. And if it is his will, then he will save them. There is no one outside the reach of God. Don't give up, Christian. But be faithful to your call to continue to share the gospel and pray that the Lord will do a miracle in them as he has done in you. And if you are not a Christian, know that you are not outside of his reach. See, I know God can save anyone, but he's not going to save me. God can save anyone. Come as you are. Believe in Jesus to save you from your sins and repent of your sins against God and ask that he would save you. Gospel is for all. And we see that as we see that salvation is for the Gentiles. Secondly, what we see is salvation for the remnant. Salvation for the remnant. This is verses 27 through 29. Verse 27 through 29. First, what we see here is that a remnant of Israel will be saved. A remnant of Israel will be saved. As in a, 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 a small section, a, a portion. Okay, that, that's the, the remnant of Israel will be saved. Paul now quotes Isaiah twice here, in verses 27 through 29. His first quote is in regard to God's plan for saving Israel. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. He says, the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Those that have descended from Abraham, the nation of Israel, were in a vast number, like that of sand. But he says only a remnant of them will be saved. There are those who will be saved. Yes. But only a remnant. This was said in Isaiah. Now Paul quotes it here in Romans. And we see it true even today. Not every Jew is saved. But there are those who have indeed believed in Jesus as Messiah. And they have been saved. Just as it says in God's word, a remnant of Israel will be saved. And indeed it is only a remnant. 
There are much more believing Gentiles than there are believing Jews. So what should this tell us today? That God's word is always right and true. What God has said in the Old Testament, what God has said in the New Testament, what we see in his holy scriptures is true yesterday, today, and forever. His truths are unchanging, and they remain true for all of eternity. God does not break his promises. But he always keeps his promises, and he never goes back on his word. He said that a remnant of Israel will be saved. And indeed, that is true. Do you sometimes struggle with trusting what God says is true? You look in his word and you see it and you say, yeah, that sounds great. Do you believe it to be true? What does God say? God says, do not fear for I am with you. I will strengthen you and help you. Do you believe that? God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? God says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? God says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Do you believe that? God says, as we looked at a few weeks ago, all things work together for good to those who love him. Do you believe that? God says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you believe that? Do you trust what the word of God says? Not do you think these sound good. Not do you hope these are true. But do you trust them? Do you believe them to be true? God keeps his promises. God keeps his word always. We can trust God in all things. Not only that, but next what we see here is that God promises to save and to judge. God promises to save and to judge. Something that God's word says, and something that it says specifically here, is that God promises to save and God promises to judge. We're talking about trusting his promises in his word. Well, this we trust as well, that he saves and that he judges. Do you trust those two promises? Do you know these two promises are true? Let's look at both of these promises. Good. Let's look at the first. First, let's look at that God promises to judge. Isaiah says that if God had not left an offspring, if there was no remnant, then Israel would have been completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? That's what he's saying here in verse 29. And this is called a, a condition contrary to fact. Right? It's a condition contrary to fact that if there was no remnant, then they would all be wiped out. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped out, right? God destroyed it because of their sin, because of their wickedness. And if God had not chosen a remnant of Israel, the same would be true of them. It is by grace that God has chosen some to be part of the remnant, just like we talked about last week. 
The doctrine of election that God has saved some, that he's chosen those. And same here, God has saved some Jews to be saved as a remnant. Just as it is by his grace that God has saved anyone. It is all by his grace. And Isaiah also says that the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as he says in verse 28. This is his judgment. It will be carried out. This is his judgment. It will be upon the earth. It will be full and without delay. And indeed, this judgment is real. And indeed, this judgment is just. You understand? Every single one of us deserves eternal judgment. And it is just for God to punish us for our sins, which is the eternal wrath of God. This judgment is real. It's not fake. It's not a hypothetical. We're not waiting to see if if God changes his mind about this judgment or not. This will happen. And if you are not in Christ, you will receive this judgment. You understand that non-Christian, my heart aches for you. My heart aches for you. This judgment is upon you and you do not care. How can you not care? You you are more worried uh, about what you're going to do next weekend or or, or your next family vacation or or how many followers you have on social media or or, or your Minecraft house or whatever it is. You're more worried about these things than you are worried with the fact that you will be forever separated from the love of God and you will receive his wrath for all of eternity. How can you be more concerned about the things of this earth and not concerned about your relationship with the holy, almighty, just God? My heart aches for you because you do not care. You act as if nothing is wrong. And you are headed straight for destruction. I pray for you. I pray that your eyes will be open to see. God promises to judge. But God also promises to save. And this is the wonderful news. There is hope. While God judges because he is just, he also saves because he is merciful. And if it were not for God's gracious love and mercy towards us, our fate would be that of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are evil and we deserve destruction. But God is gracious and loving and merciful. And he promised to send a savior and indeed he, indeed he did in Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus and only through Jesus that we can be saved. And that promise is a sure thing. In Jesus Christ, we have salvation. Because he lived the perfect life that we needed to live. And he died the death that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin that held us captive. And so there is salvation in Jesus Christ. 
God promises to judge. And He promises to save. I want you to understand, everyone in this room, I want you to understand that God's Word is talking to you and is talking about you. Do not think that His Word only applies to someone else in this room. Or it applies to a different time when you get older. Or it applies to different circumstance. Do not think that, that, that it, it doesn't apply to you. His word does apply to you. And is talking to you. You will either be judged. Or you will be saved. Which is it? You will be judged. Or you will be saved. Which is it? If you are not a Christian... Stop denying the truth that God will condemn you. Stop denying the truth. I know it's, it's not something you want to think about. It's not something I want to speak about. But simply denying it or, or ignoring it does not change the truth of it. You must face the truth of God's word. You are a sinner. And you have sinned against a holy and just God. And you deserve Eternal judgment. You are condemned to hell. And you are hopeless. On your own. But in Jesus Christ. There is hope. A sure hope of salvation. And if you are a Christian. Remember that. And remember the promises of God. That there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Know that you deserve judgment, Christian. But know that it's been spared. That you have been spared because of Christ. And that you have salvation in Him. Lastly, what we see, our last main point, that is, is salvation by grace through faith. Verses 30 through 33. Salvation by grace through faith. And first what we see here, and mostly what we see here, is that salvation is not based on works, but by faith. Salvation is not based on works, but by faith, which is given to us by grace. Paul is comparing the differences between Israel and the Gentiles. Let me read again as he compares the differences. In these couple verses, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. See, you have the Gentiles... Who are not trying to be righteous. They're not trying to be righteous. And yet they attain righteousness. How? Through faith. Whereas you have Israel. Who is pursuing righteousness through the law. But they don't obtain it. Why? Because they don't do it by faith. You see Israel relied on their heritage. On their birthrights. On their good works. And on their obedience to God's law. They believed they were bringing a good report to the table. And on paper, it looked like, all right, we're in. We're looking pretty good. But really, all it was was self-righteousness. As is the case for many today. 
And I think is the case for many in this room. And the Jews believed that they were already righteous with God. That, that, that God was already pleased because of their Jewishness, because of their works of righteousness. And it's sad, really. It's sad, really. The, the, the one who thinks he's righteous, the one who thinks he's good, does not realize how much he truly needs grace. It is really a, 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 a complete waste of effort. Because they believe that they're earning something with God, when in reality they're hardening their heart of the grace of God. To think that, that, that you are good in, in some way, it forces you to believe that you don't need Jesus in some way. You understand? That even if you think you bring a speck of goodness to the courtroom of God, you're removing a speck of God's grace. And a speck of God's grace is an infinite, colossal amount of grace that you are missing and that you desperately need. Any amount of self-righteousness that you think you have is false. And is detrimental to your understanding of your desperate need of grace. If you think that you have done anything, if you think you've done anything to earn your salvation, you are in trouble. Be careful. It can be very sneaky. If you think that by you saying a prayer a certain way, Many years ago, or, or that by you raising your hand and saying, yes, I accept Jesus, is the reason that you can look back and say, yes, I am saved. You are in trouble. If that's what you are basing your salvation on, I worry for you. Salvation is not based on anything you can do. Even a prayer. Even an acceptance. Remember that the Gentiles, they didn't have the blessings and the advantages that Israel had. Remember, we looked at that weeks ago, weeks ago. And yet in some way, that proved to be advantageous for the Gentile. As they're not tempted in the same way as Israel to present a righteousness of works. It's similar to the person who has no church experience. He, he has no idea who Jesus is. Who, he's just there. He's rotting in his sin. And he hits rock bottom. And then he hears oh, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And that person, they very clearly see and understand their desperate need for a Savior. They're not deceived by the fact that they don't need him. They know they do. And in some ways, I think it can be harder for the regular church attender. The one who thinks himself as righteous to fully grasp the depth and the beauty of the grace of God. Why? Because they think themselves as already righteous. And they, and they refuse to understand that they are just as bad and just as in desperate need of a Savior as the one who has never stepped foot in the church. The same. We cannot earn salvation. It is a gift. That we inherit. We must understand the difference between that. Between earning it and inheritance. I think about it in dollars. There's a big difference in earning a million dollars and inheriting a million dollars. Right? To earn it would mean, to earn a million dollars would mean that you've worked hard your whole life. 
And you've earned every penny of it. And you've worked hard and you've worked hard. But you've earned it. You've earned a million dollars. To inherit a million dollars would mean it was given to you as a gift. You didn't do anything for it. It was given to you. There's a big difference between earning salvation and inheriting salvation. And unlike a million dollars, you cannot earn salvation. No matter how hard you try, you cannot work your whole life to obtain it. But it's a gift by God in which we inherit through the blood of Christ. And this gift, this gift of salvation can be given by God at any time. In an instant, it can be given by God. How is that so? Because you do not build up to it. You do not earn it. It is given by God. Let me explain. Nobody is closer to salvation than anybody else. You understand that? Every non-believer is one second away from salvation. One second. Sometimes we may think, well, this person's closer because... Because they're starting to live a good life. And they're starting to ask good questions. And they're starting to become interested. So, guys, I think, I think they're getting close. I think they're getting real close to being saved. They are just as far away from salvation as the drug-using, gangster murderer who wants nothing to do with Jesus. They're in the same spot. Because salvation is not a step-by-step process. But it is a gift from God that can be given in an instant. No one seeks after God. God seeks us. And when he calls, he illuminates our hearts to see. And he gives us faith to believe. And we turn to him in genuine faith and repentance. See, the problem with Israel is that their faith was in themselves. Their pursuit of salvation was not by faith, as it says, but it says by works. At the very least, the Jew might have thought that they were closer to God, or or at least they were closer to salvation than the Gentile, because at least they were trying. At least they were keeping some of God's law. So yes, I'm a Jew, and I'm closer to salvation than the Gentile, when in reality, they were not closer. It did not bring them an inch closer. They were in the same spot. This is why the Jews were outraged at Paul's teaching. Because the Jew would say, what do you mean the Gentile can receive this eternal life? They haven't done anything. They're a Gentile. Paul, are you saying that all the sacrifices I've made, are you saying all the hours that I've gone to synagogue is for nothing? And this Gentile who's never set foot in synagogue is now saved? And Paul would say, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. You're getting the gospel. And they're saying, no, you can't be saying that. And so the Jews were outraged because everything they built, their own self-righteousness, began crumbling before their eyes. And to them, it became a stone of stumbling. Which brings us to our last point, that Christ is our rock. Christ is our rock. Look what it says at the end of verse 32 and 33. They have stumbled, that is Israel, 
they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock who is Christ. A rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that's Christ, will not be put to shame. Now, there is so much symbolism and depth to what this means of Christ being a rock. We're going to just briefly develop it right here in this one little subpoint. Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. Redemption rests solely on him. He is our cornerstone. It is on Christ and Christ alone in which we have salvation. He is the rock of our salvation. And he is the only place in which salvation is found. Not only is he the rock of our salvation, but as it says in verse 33, he is a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. The gospel is offensive. The message of Jesus Christ is offensive. Why? Because it says that you're nothing without Jesus. It says you're not good. It says you don't seek after God. It says you've sinned against God. And, and, and that, that you are justly condemned to eternal wrath. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Oh, and it says that this is the truth. And that any teaching that contradicts it is wrong. That if you reject Christ, if you reject His way and His only way, then you will indeed perish. That's an offensive message. Unless, unless it's true. If it's true, then it's a beautiful message of hope. But there are many who reject it. And to them, it is the stumbling stone. If you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, he is a stumbling stone in which you will fall. Because instead of accepting him, you trip over him and you spiritually fall and that fall leads to eternal destruction. But if you do place your faith in Christ, he is your rock. He is your foundation. He is your everything. And as it says here, that the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Which means that the one who is not in Christ will be put to shame. That they will be ashamed. And to be ashamed means to be completely defenseless in the day of God's final judgment. The non-Christian, you will be ashamed. Your mouth will be firmly shut and you will have no defense. And your evil sins of offense to a holy God will be read out loud and you will be found guilty. And there will be no one to defend you and no one to come to your side. And no one to save you. You will be ashamed. Condemnation will be upon you. Unless you are found in Jesus Christ. He changes everything. In him you will not be put to shame. Because there is no condemnation for you Christian. You are firmly secured in the rock. Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your cornerstone? See your cornerstone, the rock of your salvation? Or do you stumble over him, rejecting Christ? As we close, what I want you to know is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And God has promised 
that salvation is open to all. To those who have utterly rejected Christ, to those who are utterly self-righteous, and to all in between. If you are not a Christian, know that the gospel is for you. And I don't know where you stand with Jesus. And I don't know what, what your reasonings are for not turning to Christ. But it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what your reasonings are. What matters is that you are rejecting him. What matters is that you do not have salvation. What matters is that you have hostility with God and you are destined to perish for all of eternity. But the gospel is for you. Do not think that you cannot come to Jesus. Whatever reasons or excuses or fears you have, put them aside. Jesus is greater than any of them. And place your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and find forgiveness in him. And I'll close with this, that if you are a Christian, be faithful to continue to preach the gospel to all. Do not be discouraged by the ones that seem like they will never be saved. Remember, it's not about them getting closer and closer and closer until, until they're finally convinced of it. It's about God opening their hearts, and he can do so like that in an instant, in a second. Salvation is in the hands of God. And what better hands for it to be in? Do you trust God? Do you trust his word? Do you trust his promises? If so, then be faithful to declare his glory to all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises. Thank you for your promise of salvation. God, thank you that we do have salvation in Christ. God, thank you for choosing us and taking us out of our, the, the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into your kingdom of light. Lord, I pray that we would be passionate for your gospel. That we would seek to share your gospel with all. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with thankfulness of your gospel that you have saved us. Lord, I pray you would continue to call your people to yourself. God, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that they would see. God, that you would save them in an instant. Right now. The second. God, it only comes from you. But God, we thank you that it does come from you. We ask that you would receive all glory and praise. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.